0: Turn with me in your Bible, your copy of the Bible, whether it's online or paper copy. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach in the morning and also to be able to continue uh, a series through Proverbs. And it's a good reminder because Proverbs is well-liked by some and maybe not so much by others, but Jesus reminded us, he even warned us, he said, we live not by bread alone, we do not live for the food that perishes, but we live, we draw life from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, including this passage in Proverbs chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life." Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness, and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Please join me in prayer. Our God and Father, Lord, we thank you that it is your word, O Lord, that is truth. Father, sanctify your people by your truth. Lord, uphold your judgments, your righteous judgments to all peoples. And I pray, Lord, that you would glorify your son, Jesus Christ, that his word, his spirit would be among us. And we would see Jesus by faith. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, commentators tell us that the typical person spends about two and a half hours online digesting social media on a daily basis. About two and a half hours. Granted, there's some of you that spend a little bit more, some that spend a lot less. But think of two and a half hours. That's 38 days out of your entire year. 38 days, that's 10% of your year. 10% of your year. That's as if you're giving a tithe of 10% to social media. So the prophet Malachi says, if you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, the Lord will pour out his blessings upon you. And so I ask you, how are the blessings of social media being poured out upon your life? Is Is it actually blessing you? Is it making a difference? Now, I'm not arguing that social media is not an important tool. It's a huge, incredible invention for the 21st century and like any tool though, it can be used for good and it can be used for evil. Defense analysts, they look at how governments use social media. They look at how uh, the military uses of social media and social media essentially is looked at as a kind of domain of battle, as a kind of battlefield, right? We know there's there's the traditional domains of air, sea, land, even space, but now social media is looked at as a domain of warfare through which certain foreign governments and certain military operations are revealing the intentions for what they call cognitive operations cognitive warfare, a way that in which they are battling, not for physical people first and foremost, but starting with the mind, starting with the hearts of people. So imagine this. Enemies are captured on a battlefield, but a shot is never fired. There's no shelling, there's no explosions, and yet people are captured to do the will of another. This is not a new observation. Even though it seems very novel in the 21st century, it's not a new observation at all. What I just read from Proverbs chapter four highlights that battlefield, that warfare. And you know in the New Testament as well, Colossians chapter two, verse eight. The apostle Paul tells the church, the early church, see to it that no one takes you captive. By what? By philosophy, and empty deceit. By human tradition, by the elemental spirits of the world. See to it that no one takes you captive. So what about you? Right. I don't ask whether your mind has been captured, but even for the Christian, there is a sense in which there are places in the heart, places in the mind that are captured by philosophy, captured by human tradition, captured by the elemental spirits of the world. In fact, for the believer, the fact that as we heard through the assurance of pardon from Ezekiel, the believer having a heart of flesh, also what is revealed in your daily life is that there are stony areas in that heart of flesh. There are places that you resist The rule of King Jesus. Maybe you might say not on purpose, but you are resisting. And until God's word and God's spirit reveal these areas to you, you are held captive. You are held captive. But by God's grace, we have his word to show us where are we being held captive. How? Now, the passage today in Proverbs chapter 4 shows us there is only... Two paths. There's only two options. There's the path of wisdom, and there's the path of wickedness. There's no other path to take. But the reality is, and here's where we see God's word coming to to bear on our lives, the reality is that every path doesn't start with my feet. Every path starts in my mind, in my heart. The passage opens... In verse 10 of Hebrew, of Proverbs chapter 4. It opens with the invitation. This is this should be a familiar invitation if you remember as we've looked at Proverbs from the very beginning. Hear my son and accept my words. This is an older, more mature, wiser person speaking to a younger, simple person who needs to be formed, who needs to be trained, who needs to understand how to grow in wisdom. And the invitation, it's not simply uh, based on gender. It, It could be a father to a son. It could be a mother to a daughter. It could be biological or adoptive parents speaking to children. It could be spiritual parents speaking to spiritual children. The way in which this training is happening is really a method that God has instilled into the very creation of the world. All of mankind, every single person is created in the image of God. This God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. He is one God and three persons, and He is relational, and He has created you and I to be relational. In fact, only God creates out of nothing. Everything that we do is simply derivative. We derive from our God, who has done all things. Now, we can derive it on a path of wisdom, or we can derive it on a path of wickedness and pervert it to our own means, but it's all derivative. and So the invitation comes to the son, to the daughter. Hear, hear, not just listen, but respond in obedience. Accept my words, grab hold of them, believe them, trust them, do them in every way, that the years of your life may be many. Writer and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, back in the, the 19th century, he made some brilliant observations, and this One that I'm about to share with you, many of you probably could quote it uh, verbatim, but it speaks about sowing and it speaks about reaping. So planting the seeds and then harvesting the fruit that comes after the plant is grown and bears fruit. But this will sound familiar to many of you. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Now, if this writer was able to see the connection between thoughts and destiny, he's able to, to observe what is true, what is bound up into the very design of the world. He understood that every path begins in the mind, begins in the heart. Every path. And yet, Emerson also said this. He said, I like the silent church, before the service begins, better than any preaching. So at this point, Emerson would have been turned off, tuned out, and maybe even exited the sanctuary. Some of you may be struggling with, okay, maybe I'm not paying attention like I should. And granted, there's tons of bad preachers. So every bad preacher should be called to account, no doubt. I don't argue that at all, but you know, Every single belief system has a preacher. Every single belief system has an evangelist that is taking this message and making it known. If you're familiar with TED Talks or podcasts, right? We're replete with preachers and evangelists for every single type of thinking that's out there. But ultimately, this observation that I'm going to be the measure of all things rather than the word of God. Right? This, this is the fatal flaw. He trusted his own thinking more than God's thinking. So How do you know which thoughts you should sow? How do you know what the objective standard is by which you measure your thinking? Or do you do like Emerson? And if it feels good, if I think it's right, then it must be right. Too many of us live by that standard. We practically say, I believe the word of God, yet we experientially say, I'm going to do it my way. And that's the problem that the writer of Proverbs deals with. Proverbs began in Proverbs chapter 1 with with exposing where the path of wisdom begins. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of understanding. But fools despise wisdom. It's the fear of the Lord. It is that sense of the awe and majesty and holiness of this God that would even invite us into his presence through the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the fear of the Lord that makes all the difference. And understanding follows that. Understanding follows it. But Proverbs 4, verse 10 also gives us why. Why should we pay attention? Right? The second half of the verse, that, so that, the years of your life may be many. And all of the translations, the major translations, line up on that. The years of your life, many. And we sometimes think, because... We measure life according to what we see and experience on earth. We sometimes think, well, does that mean I live 50 years, 60 years, 80 years? I know really good people that died at a very young age. Is it, is it simply a number of years? But what's interesting, again, mankind is created in the image of God. He has placed eternity, eternity in your heart so you have a soul that will last forever. So eternity is truly how we want to measure. And whether, when you think of the years being many, that Hebrew word can also be translated that they will be multiplied. They will be made great. In other words, this is an invitation to a great life. Not simply measured by the quality of your life on earth, but the quality of your life in eternity. This is the measurement that God cares most about. Remember, Jesus said a great reward in heaven will bring about persecution on earth. He also said whoever does and teaches the commandments, they will be called great in heaven. Not necessarily on earth, but in heaven. So even the longest life on earth pales in comparison to a life in eternity. And again, where you spend eternity begins on where that path in your heart is heading. Is it heading to a path of wisdom or is it heading to a path of evil? The path or the way of wisdom we see in verses 11 through 13. The teacher says, and he gives an example. He says, I have taught you and I have led you. So every successful teacher will both teach the message and typify the message. They will be the example of the message as well as the content flowing out of their words. But this is true for good as well as for evil. Successful wickedness is promulgated through very successful teachers who are teaching things that are contrary to the word of God. So how do we sort it out? Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, commended the Bereans to evaluate his own teaching, Paul the Apostle, against what the Word of God says. Test the Word. Noble-minded people test what they hear, what they think, according to the Word of God. And then we look at the Word of God as we turn to John chapter 1, We have in our Bibles the words of God. John chapter 1 reminds us that the word, Jesus, John 1, 14, became flesh. He took on a human nature and he dwelt among people. He dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, Full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we see a Heavenly Father who has loved us from all eternity. And he has proven that love through giving his son, Jesus Christ, for your sins and for your righteousness, which you obtain by faith in his name. And so the the progress of the student will depend on two things. We'll see an attitude of humility, but we'll also see an advancement in holiness. Verse 11, the teacher says, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. You see, I won't want to hear unless I think I need to hear, which means I, I need to humble myself before the right teacher, the right one that could teach me these things. If I humble myself before the wrong one, I'm on the path of evil. Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like A little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That humility is then exemplified. It's perfected through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the example of perfect humility because he, being the eternally begotten son of God, having the same nature as God, completely divine, he laid aside the privilege to exercise that perfection, so that he could humble himself, take on flesh, dwell among us, live and die for sin. This is the the epitome of humility. Even so, when he came into Jerusalem, he came humbled, on a donkey, on a colt. Not how a worldly king would come, but how the king of kings did come. And we see in verse 12 the advancement of holiness. What does it look like? When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. If you run, you will not stumble. We know that the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. But that same writer also says, without holiness, without sanctification, it's impossible to see this God. You cannot see him without the sanctification comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. You need His holiness so that you can stand in the presence of this eternal, perfect God and not be crushed under the weight of judgment. Christ offers this through His blood and sacrifice. The Lord Jesus is both the power and the wisdom of God. So why students embrace both a privilege as well as a responsibility to follow their Lord and savior wherever he leads. And a wise student knows that there's things that he must do and things that he must not. Things that she should do and things that she should not be doing. And we see that as we go on to verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And then we jump all the way down to verse 19. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. So verses 14 through 18, that bracketed section shows us the competition of the wicked. Now some say, well, okay, I do a few bad things. I, I understand that. But, but I'm certainly not wicked, am I? Like, am I? Is that really what the Bible says? Well, only... The book of Psalms exceeds Proverbs, and the number of times the word wicked comes apart. And again, we need an objective source by which we define our terms. So if we look at Psalm 1, we see that it is the blessed one, the happy one, the contented one, that does what? They meditate upon the law of God day and night. God's words are their food. They think about these words. They apply these words to themselves. They, they are continually meditating on the law of God, but they walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. So that both positive and negative command, we see that again exemplified through all of scripture, but it's most clearly seen back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2. God commands them. He commands Adam and Eve. He says, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So right there, right in the Garden of Eden, God placed a temptation for Adam and Eve. And we like to think, if there's any way to avoid the temptation, I'd rather just avoid it. I'd rather not have to carry the weight, the difficulty. I'd rather not be seemingly provoked to sin because of that temptation? And why didn't God just leave the tree out of the garden? Why didn't he just put it somewhere else? Why didn't he just hide my eyes so I don't have to see it? And some of you say, oh, if I just if I didn't see these things, I wouldn't be tempted to sin. But think of, think of it in another way, right? When we, when we do the congregational prayer every Sunday... We conclude it with the Lord's Prayer, how the Lord taught his disciples to pray. And there's a number of petitions, there's a number of things that we ask the Lord to do, right? To, to, you know, to, for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done. We ask, these are petitions. We're asking him to, to do these things. And the very last of the petitions is, lead us not into temptation. Now, that actually means two things. To lead us not into temptation, the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us, it means that God would either keep us from being tempted, and I think most of us would agree that's ideal. You can just avoid being in the temptation, that's ideal. But also in the midst of the temptation, it also means to support and deliver us so that we not sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 No temptation has come upon you, but such as is common to man, but what? The key phrase in that verse, God is faithful. So no matter what temptation you are in, you can see that your God is faithful so that you can get out of the temptation. You can avoid sinning by doing what God desires of you, by responding well, by continuing on the path of wisdom. So think of it in terms in another sort of a worldly illustration, but think of it in terms of competition. So some of you like to participate in a race, like a 5K or a 10K or a half marathon. Some of you like games. So there's a lot of ways to compete. Now think about what competition can do. Competition can either cause me to just throw up my arms and give up, this is too hard. Or competition can also push me to do something that I never thought I could do. When you you just train for a 5K or a half marathon on your own, that's one thing. But then when it's race day, when you're in the midst of the the competition, you can actually perform better than you ever had on your own in the midst of that. That competition could drive you to do something better than you ever could have imagined. Think of temptation for the Christian Right? For the unbeliever, you're hopeless. You, you're you're going to fail every single time in a temptation. But for the Christian, think of that temptation as God's ordained means by which he is pushing you on to greater trust in him and greater performance. Think of that temptation as an opportunity to trust Christ more than you ever had, ever. And he gets the glory. He gets the honor. So we should expect competition along the way. We should not hope for a completely smooth path and no challenges and no difficulties before me. We should expect this competition because God has ordained it. And remember, verses 18 and 19, remember the trajectory of each path, the path of wisdom as well as the path of wickedness. Remember the trajectory verse 18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. That that day that will dawn, that that day that shines brighter and brighter each day as we get closer, this is the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his second appearing on earth. When he returns to earth, that Oh, beloved, that you can see your Savior face to face. You've seen him by faith. That day you will see him face to face as he is, and he will receive the glory. So that light that continues to dawn until the full day, that light is the appearing of his presence. But for those who have rejected the gospel, who have rejected the only hope in Christ Jesus, that light that you see coming, that's a train, and that's headed for you, and that train is for your judgment. You are hopeless apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and standing in his righteousness and standing in his goodness. But we have a blessed hope that spurs us on to move closer and closer to our Savior as we walk this path of wisdom. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 give us a very similar warning to what we read in Proverbs chapter 4. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 3. And, and the whole premise behind the book of Hebrews is so that we would see that better than the, the prophets, better than the sacrifices, better than angels, better than any other thing we have christ we have jesus christ so the writer of hebrews tells us therefore we must pay much closer attention All right that same theme that keeps coming up in proverbs pay attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it how do you drift away from something is you just have to be 1 degree off of true north Christ is your true north. If you are one degree off, you are drifting, and you will miss him. You will miss him for all eternity. Pay closer attention, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. We have the gospel. We have the word of God. We have Christ proclaimed through every book of the scriptures. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Look one last time in Proverbs chapter four. The first verse is the invitation. Proverbs four, verse 10. One verse, this is your invitation The next three verses, verses 11 through 13, we have the instructions to follow this path of wisdom, this path of righteousness. Three verses. And then the last six verses, verse 14 through 19, we have the warning to avoid the path of evil, to avoid the path of wickedness. Why do you think there's twice as many verses telling you what not to do as there are telling you what to do? let's go back to Ralph Waldo Emerson. He made a, another great observation. And good observers can diagnose a problem, but without the word of God, you cannot treat the problem. So Emerson said this, the reason why the world lacks unity. So he observed that. It's impossible not to see the disunity, the dysfunction, the problems of the world. He said, the reason why the world lacks unity and lies broken and in heaps is because man is disunited in himself. Man is a disunity. Man has no integrity. That's the problem. Yet the Bible offers the solution. Psalm 86, verse 11. Psalm 86, verse 11. This Psalm of David says, teach me your way. O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. Unite my heart that I might fear your name. Indeed, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Please join me in prayer. Our God and Father, Lord, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, Father. Indeed, the very wisdom of God, the very power of God. Oh, Lord, we thank you that we are reminded over and over in the scriptures of the difficulty, the difficult path of following the Lord Jesus. Father, indeed, to, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow you is difficult. It is a constraining path, but Lord, it is a path where I find fellowship with my Savior, Jesus Christ, in a way that I never would have experienced. So, Lord, we're grateful for the difficulties. We're grateful for the temptations. We're grateful for how you have ordained every detail of life so that we would see more of Jesus. We would depend more on Jesus. We would see how you provide for all of our needs. In order, in, indeed, Lord, you are faithful in every way. And I pray, Father, for those that are on the fence, those that are on the path of evil, Lord, I pray, show your compassion, your mercy, your kindness to them. Lord, turn them to you so that you would receive the glory and honor and praise. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.